Well, the Lord has given us a word for this new year, 2024. The first month's already gone. Can you believe it? It's moving quick. But the Lord said to us about 2024, he said it'd be a year like never before. Take a look at this with me. 2024, a year like never before. And he added to that, if you would expect the uncommon and embrace the unfamiliar, you would encounter the unimaginable. If you can see that, let's say it out loud together, right there where it says, expect the uncommon. Let's say that whole part together and let's put some faith in it. Ready? Let's say this. Expect the uncommon, embrace the unfamiliar, encounter the unimaginable. Thank you, Lord. Now he's given us our part in this and he's made clear his part in it. His part in it would be to pour out of his spirit, and we're gonna talk about this more today, but to pour out of his spirit on us in ways that we've never imagined before. And to do, like the scripture says, to do things in us, for us, through us, that are beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine. Glory to God. That's his part in it. What's your part? Your part in it is to wake up every day expecting the uncommon. Now that is not something that comes naturally. Naturally, we wake up and expect exactly what we've already seen. Naturally speaking, we wake up and expect what we saw yesterday and the day before and the day before. But he's telling us faith doesn't take that approach to life. Faith in God takes the approach. You wake up and you say, this is going to be a good day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. He's in this day. And if he's in it, something's coming that maybe I've never seen before. I've never experienced before. And you're expecting it. And if you'll do that, that makes you different than much of the rest of this world. And if you will do that, then you and I will encounter some things that are unexpected. What's the next part in it? Embrace it. Embrace it. Even if it's unfamiliar to you. When you recognize God is in this, I see him moving in it. I recognize his, his fingerprint on it. So you embrace it, even if it's unfamiliar to you. Now, why would he have to say that to us? Because our tendency is to embrace the unfamiliar. No, resist. Our tendency is to think this is too new. This is not, not like anything I've seen before. And so we tend to push it away from us. But the spirit of God is instructing us embrace it. And if we'll expect the uncommon, embrace the unfamiliar, he will cause us to encounter the unimaginable. Put this on the screen for us. Isaiah chapter 43 verses 18 and 19. These are the words the Lord has given us to build this expectation on. He said, do not remember the former things. How many of you know that takes faith? It takes faith to forget some stuff. The same faith that it takes to remember, like he said in the book of Psalms, forget not all his benefits. What are those benefits? He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He renews your youth like the eagles. It takes faith to remember that stuff, especially when your youth don't feel so renewed. Especially when you're looking in the mirror and you're thinking, those lines weren't there yesterday. What is this silvery color I see up top? 
It takes some faith to remind yourself and remember. Somebody say it. Remember, remember the promises. It takes faith to recall that. It takes faith to remind yourself that he has healed all my diseases. Especially when your body is screaming at you saying, you're hurting, you're sick, you're weak, you're dying. It takes some faith to remind yourself, no, he has healed all my diseases. Well, the same faith that it takes to remember some stuff is the faith that it takes to forget some stuff. And this is what Paul talked about in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting all the things that lie behind me, I'm pressing towards. Amen. So the scripture is very clear with us about the things we're supposed to remember. He's also very clear with us about the things we're supposed to forget and how, how easily our flesh wants to get those things flopped. What a tendency we have to forget the things we're supposed to remember and remember the things we're supposed to forget. It takes faith. Amen. Faith to remember, faith to forget. We've talked a lot about this. And if you've missed any of that, all those messages are available for you free online. The good, well, let's keep reading here. He put that back up there for us. He said, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Why? I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? And this is what the new thing looks like. He said, I will even make a road in the wilderness. Now that wilderness is just a dry place. We've talked a lot about this already, but let me remind you, the wilderness is a dry place. The wilderness, by definition, is a pathless place. He said, I'm going to make a road in the wilderness. So once again, when the Lord's busy doing a new thing in our lives this year, how will we know it's him? Because not every new thing is him. How are we going to know it's actually of him, by him, from him? You know what he's telling you? This is what it looks like. It looks like a road. It looks like a road where there wasn't one before. And that's what the wilderness is. The dry place, the unproductive place, the pathless place where you just wander aimlessly. And we've got pretty crystal clear example in the scriptures about a whole nation of people that wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And the Spirit of God is saying to us, I'm going to do a new thing. And this new thing, are you ready for this? Is getting you out of the wilderness. This new thing is taking you out of this pathless place. It's taking you out of this aimless, directionless place, unproductive place. And I'm going to put a road right through it. And if you'll pay attention, you can take the road right out of it. Right out of the wilderness. Glory to God. He said, this new thing I'm doing is going to be a road in the wilderness, and it's going to be a river in the desert. This word wilderness, this word desert, look them up. They mean the same thing, dry, uh, unproductive. We've got Big Vision Sundays coming up, starting next week, going into the week following. And we're going to talk about vision, but I'm going to give you a taste right now of what, of what kind of vision I want stirring in you before we go any further into this year. 
You need a vision, are you ready for this? Of you out of the wilderness. You have got to get a vision of you no longer wandering that unproductive place. Stop saying things like, God's got me in a season of, of wilderness. It's just a wilderness season. No, he doesn't. We've, we've backed all this up with scripture. Like I said, if you've missed any of it, go back and hear it again because this is so important. But get a vision of you coming out of that unproductive place. I've got a vision for it. When the Lord started ministering this to me back in November of last year, and he started talking to me about coming out of this wilderness, this unproductive place. As soon as he said it, my heart and mind went to some areas of our own ministry. Some areas that we've been hard at work and, and doing things in, but we've just sort of hit a ceiling in and they haven't produced in the way that we desired them to. And this is what the Lord brought to my heart. It's going to start producing. I said, it's going to start producing. Come on, any business owners in here? Huh? Any business owners in here? You got to get a vision of you coming out of this wilderness, this unproductive place where you're not producing anything and not producing like you want to be. There's a road out of that mess. I think I'm preaching a little bit this morning. You going to get in this with me today? He's bringing us out. So the vision that we want to stir in our hearts over the next few weeks is a vision of us coming out of this wilderness. Thank you, Lord. Let's look at this from the Good News Translation. Put that up there for us, Isaiah 43, 18. The Lord says, do not cling to the events of the past or dwell on what happened long ago. He said, watch for the new thing that I'm going to do. Does that sound like expect it? Wake up looking for it, expecting it. Watch for the new thing that I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, it's happening already. Glory to God. It's happening already. You can see it now. I'll make a road through the wilderness. I'll give you streams of water there. So this is the new thing he's doing. Praise the Lord. Now, one of the things we've already established, and I'll just go over it one more time, is anytime through scripture that you see God do a new thing in a people, in a nation, two groups inevitably form. We've talked a lot about this already but you can see it all the way through, script, through scriptures. Two groups form. One group, we'll call them the resistors. This new thing is just too new and they don't want anything to do with it and so they push back against it. They're, they're not embracing it, they're resisting it. You see this so clearly in the ministry of Jesus and God was doing a new thing when he sent Jesus. Amen. But instead of everybody who was a witness to it, just embracing it with open arms, these two groups formed and you see the resistors, you see those hard hearted religious people who push back against what God was doing in and through Jesus. But at the same time that you see the resistors, you see this other group over here and they're the receivers. These two groups always show up in the middle of a new thing. Those who fight against it, those who yield to it. Those who resist it, those who receive from it. Now the thing about the resistors, they don't receive anything. You can't receive from God while you resist God. 
Is that too deep for anybody this morning? They couldn't receive. But the receivers, the yielders, the believers, those are the ones who benefited from the new thing. The receivers got healed. The receivers got blind eyes opened. The receivers got lame legs that could walk. The receivers got their loved ones raised from the dead. You don't get any of that fighting against God. You only get it when you yield to him and you become a receiver. And these two groups always form. In the book of Acts chapter two, you can turn there with me if you want to, um, or we'll just put it on the screen for you. But you talk about doing a new thing. The day of Pentecost, God began a new thing in the earth. And Jesus had told his disciples after he resurrected from the dead, you go to Jerusalem and you wait there. I might say, you watch, you expect. He was telling them about the Holy Spirit coming and this new thing that God was getting ready to do in the earth. And he said, don't you leave there until this comes. So go, you wait, you watch, you expect, and when it comes, you embrace it. And they did, and he did, and we have, because of that, Acts chapter 2, when they were all gathered together in the upper room, and there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And the Bible says it filled the whole place where they waited and divided tongues of fire sat on each one of them. Somebody say, this is new. <laughs> this, is, this wasn't going on yesterday. This is new. And they began to speak, but it wasn't their own language. They began to speak, the Bible says, in other tongues. As the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Uh, this is new. <laughs> I wasn't talking like this yesterday. This is new. But this new language came with new power. And this power got so all over them that they couldn't stay in that room. You know what happened. They come stumbling drunk, or so many people thought, out of that upper room speaking in this unknown language. And yet the people, the thousands that were there heard it. And this one heard it in their language. And this one heard it in their language. And they said, what in the world is going on? They're looking at each other going, uh, this is new. Never seen anything like this. Never experienced this before. And the two groups show up. On the, on the first day of Pentecost, the first day when God's doing a new thing in the earth through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And there were those who heard it and witnessed it and said, what do we need to do? How, how, how do we be saved? And then there were those others that heard it and said, these guys are drunk. Actually, the Bible says they mocked them. That's one of the key characteristics of the resistor group. They mock. They mock what they don't understand. So two groups forming right there. And Peter preached to them. And I want to draw your attention to this today in the book of Acts chapter 2 in verse 16. I know you've heard these words, but listen to them again. Acts chapter two, verse 16, Peter said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I like the way the King James says it. He said, this is that. Have you heard that before? This is that. What is this? It's that. What is this new thing? It's that thing. <laughs> this thing is that thing. 
This is that, and what is that? The thing that was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what did Joel say? Joel said, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Now notice this, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams on my men servants and on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So here's what we've already come to find out just since the beginning of this year. God's saying, I'm doing a new thing. And let's just make it personal. Hey, legacy, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing something new in this church, but not just something in this house. I'm doing something new in your house. And we began to get this little bits of revelation week by week by week. And what we've already come to see is that this new thing that God is doing in this family is an outpouring of his Holy Spirit like never before. Isn't that what he said? 2024, a year like never before. Well, it's going to be an outpouring of his Holy Spirit, but it's going to be something we haven't experienced before, something we haven't seen before. Anybody ready for some of this? Man, I am. But then what the Lord has already started adding to this is characterizing this outpouring of his Holy Spirit and challenging, I know he's challenging me, maybe he's challenging you too, to take the limitations off your imaginations of what an outpouring of the Holy Spirit looks like. I grew up in church where we encountered some of these things. We would call it a move of the Holy Ghost. And man, we had some services. I remember being a kid, being a teenager, and it always seemed like when finally that one cool kid from my school came to visit. Anybody know where I'm going with this? That's the day we had this move of the Holy Ghost. And people are running and people are shouting and people are laughing and this one's praying in tongues and this one's got a word from the Lord. And it was just, it seemed like a wild service. I was a part of some of that growing up. So in my mind, when I think about a move of the Holy Spirit, I got to be honest with you. Sometimes my mind goes to something that looks like that. And hey, listen, if the Lord wants to do it, would you let him? If he wanted to do some things in this service that uh, weren't quite like what we saw last week or the week before, would you embrace it or would you go, what happened to this church? (laughs) I say, let him do what he wants to do and we flow with him. But I'm also challenging you to take the limitations off your imagination that a move of the Holy Ghost doesn't have to look just like what maybe you've seen in your past. Could he do something in a new way? Could he do something in a way you and I have never seen before? And here's what I know that the Lord is saying to this church, that this move of the Holy Spirit is something that is going to take place in the family. In the family. And I don't just mean us as a family. Of course, I mean that, you know, the family, the church family. But how about a move of the Holy Spirit in your living room? How about a move of the Holy Ghost in your car on the way to work? Now, that's not a good time to pass out, right? (laughs) 
So that's, that, that's not what he's talking about. How about a move of the Holy Ghost among your children, your grandchildren? I know this with such confidence, church, that this is what he's talking to us about. This move that's coming to our church, it's going to have to do with our families. And I just was walking around my living room yesterday, praying in the Holy Ghost, meditating some of these things, and the Lord brought me right back to Acts chapter 2, and he said, this thing, this new thing, what is it? It's that. This is that. What is that? It's what Joel said. Look at it one more time. And I, when I saw this yesterday, I thought, Lord, where's this been my whole life? What did Joel say? It will come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. There's that outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And where's it going to show up? Your sons. Your sons and your daughters. This is not just a reference to somebody's young age. These are people who have a place in our house. Where's this outpouring going to start? Your sons and your daughters. Thank you, Lord. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men, here's your teenagers, shall see visions. Your old men, don't raise your hand if that's about you, but that's all right if it is. Your old men shall dream dreams. Do you see what's happening? The Spirit of God says, I'm going to pour myself out and it's going to touch every person in the family. From young to old and old to young. That's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. And he said, your men servants, your maid servants, I'm pouring out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, Peter went on in this same chapter towards the end of this message. And it says in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive. Somebody say receive. So he's talking to people who want to receive. I want to be a part of this outpouring. I want my family to be a part of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he said, here's how you do it. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Are you open to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit even as he moves in your, on your children, on your teenagers? Now, we won't take time to turn there, but just a few chapters later, the Spirit of God comes on a man named Stephen, and he begins, begins preaching boldly. And this is in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, but he's preaching to people who are not receiving, they're resisting. As a matter of fact, he says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Can you see all these references to family? He said, you're not receiving, you're resisting. You should be embracing, but you're pushing against. And the Lord is saying this to his church week after week after week. It's like he's taken over a month now to say, I'm doing a new thing, but you got to decide right now which group you in. Resistors or receivers, receivers or resistors, which one will it be? 
I'm in the receiving group. Anybody else in this church? You're ready to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit moving in this family. Thank you, Lord. Okay, go with me now, please, to the book of Psalm. And let's look at a verse we looked at last week. Psalm 68. And this is a verse we talk a lot about around here. Actually, it's one of the verses that the Lord gave us years ago in the founding days of this church. But in the last few days and weeks, this verse has just become like a giant sponge to me and I just squeeze it and stuff just keeps coming out. In verse six, Psalm 68, verse six, you even heard Sarah minister this to you already today. He said, God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But he said, the rebellious dwell in a, what kind of land? That's wilderness. The dry land, that's wilderness, that's desert. And this is why we're not going to say, God's got me in a dry place. God's got me in a wilderness season. When the word of God is so clear about who, who is in the dry place and why they're in the dry place, the rebellious. That's what's got people in a dry place. Let's quit blaming God for stuff that's our own responsibility. It's not God that's got you in a dry place. Your heart's got you in a dry place. And God's saying, hey, I'm doing a new thing. And I'll put a road right here. And all you got to do is get on the road. And I'll get you out of the dry place. And notice what he said. Not only is he going to get you out of the dry place, he said he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. That's the opposite of a dry place. That's where stuff's working. That's when things are producing. Amen. But I want to back up in this today and squeeze a little more out of this sponge. Back up with me to verse five and take all of this as a whole thing together. Psalm 68, verse five. He said, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. And then he says, he sets the solitary in families. So both of these verses here, can you see that they're dealing with family? A father to the fatherless. A father to the fatherless. If you look up this word fatherless, it actually is a word that is translated orphan. And we know that, right? To be orphaned doesn't mean you didn't have a father. You had to. You had to have a father. You had to have a mother. It means they're no longer present. It means they're not in your life, which means you're not getting from them what you're supposed to be getting from them. And we know in our own country right now that much of the reason that these younger generations and even some of the generations that we're a part of are in the shape they're in goes back to a root of fatherlessness. And some people are fatherless and dad's living in the same house down the hall. It's about having that presence. 
It's about having that, that place in their life. And I don't know where you fall into that, but I bet I could take a survey just in this room, just w- among those watching online, and I bet there is at least some of us in here who have some experience with fatherlessness. Maybe your natural father wasn't there, left you at an early age. Or even if he was, he just seemed to be absent. Just mind and heart seemed to be somewhere else. Whatever your experience was, whatever your story is, the good news is your God and mine has said he will be a father to the fatherless. Fatherless. He goes on and he says, not only will he be a father to the fatherless, He'll be a, uh, this translation, what does he say? A, one translation says a judge. This one says a um, defender of widows. What is a widow? We talked about the orphan who is fatherless. A widow is somebody who is husbandless. And I imagine we have some ladies even in our own congregation that know some things about that, have gone through that experience. And if you know anything about our God, he takes widows to his heart. All you got to do is look around the Old Testament a little bit, and some of the greatest miracles he ever did were for widows. Miracles of provision. When the creditors were coming to take away the family and take away the farm, He did some amazing things and he did it for the widow, for the husbandless. What's the scripture saying to us? This scripture saying God will be what you need him to be. (laughs) He will be whatever you are less, whatever you are without. He will be that. Come on. Can you see that? If you've been missing that father influence, he'll be that. A father to the fatherless. A husband to the husbandless. The widow who perhaps lacked the ability to defend, to provide, to protect for herself. God said, I'll do it. I'll do that for you. Can you see what he's doing in the family here? He's taking place in the family. But listen. He will be what you need him to be if you let him be what you need him to be. He cannot be a father to the one who resists him being the father. He cannot be the husband and the provider to the one that resists him being the husband. Come on, church. We got to let him be dad. We got to let him be the husband and we've got to be the bride. But he can't be those things if we're fighting against it. And then what did he say? Not only will he be the father to the orphan, the fatherless, the husband to the husbandless, he said he sets the solitary in families. Now, here's what I saw yesterday that I'd never seen before. And this is what's got me so excited. Fatherless. Husbandless, 
solitary. Now, when I've read that in the past, I've always just taken that to mean somebody who's isolated, somebody who's disconnected, and that's true. God is not cool with you and I living disconnected. He's not okay with you being an island unto yourself. And what he does is he takes that isolated, disconnected, set apart one, and he sets them in a family. That's what he's good with is family. But what I found out was this word solitary is actually the same word in the Old Testament that's translated only child. Only child. You remember when God spoke to Abraham and said, take now Isaac, your only son, your only begotten son. That's this word right here. He takes the solitary. He takes the only child and sets him in a family. So here he is moving, if you will. And he's a father to the fatherless. He's a husband to the husbandless. But what is an only child? They are, I heard it, brotherless, sisterless. Anybody in here have that story growing up? Do I have any? I see a few hands. Only child. Only child. I had a, I have a sister, not had, have a sister. She showed up when I was about seven. So the first few years of my life were solitary, only child. But then I lived the rest of my childhood with a sister and, and even now we're good friends to this day and she's got kids and we've got kids and we, we have that, uh, that bond that brothers and sisters have. I think about my grandfather though. My grandfather, Kenneth Copeland, many of you know who that is. Um, his mom, Vanetta Copeland, who was born, I think, if I have this right, she's born about 1920 or so, between 1915, 1920. And when she was a teenager, she was an athlete growing up in West Texas, and she was on the basketball court as a high school basketball player when she collapsed and fell, lost consciousness, and they rushed her to the hospital in their little town. And you got to remember, what is this? Probably, what, 1930 or whatever at this time? I don't know. West Texas in the 1930s was still a little wild. It was still a little bit of the Wild West. And they've got her to the hospital. The doctor opens her up. And they gave her no chance of living. She's going to die. Now, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Vanetta, she was, I believe, full-blood Cherokee Indian. So her father, who was born, what, was that put him in the mid to later 1800s? This is the Wild West. And he proved that when he came into the doctor, who said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. And he says to her, she dies, you die. <laughs> She dies, you die. And I, I don't think he was joking. So this doctor goes back in and does his best to just put 
what they took out back in. This is really just nearly barbaric, the way they're doing this. Sews her back up, nobody gives her any chance to live, and yet she does. And then she ends up marrying my great-grandfather, Aubrey Wayne Copeland, and she marries him at the ripe old age of, I don't know, maybe 17. <laughs> and uh, the doctors told her, don't ever try to have a baby. It'll kill you. Don't ever try to have a baby. But she wanted a baby. They wanted a baby. And year after year after year after year went with no children. But one day, years later, she became pregnant. And she gave birth to Kenneth Max Copeland, my grandfather. But because of the toll that it took on her, and I think it was a pretty intense pregnancy, she never had kids again. My grandfather is an only child. And he would tell these stories all my grown up, and even today, if you listen to him preach, you might hear him tell these stories. As an only child, he wanted a brother so bad. He wanted a brother so bad, and there was so much Cherokee Indian in his heritage, he didn't just want a brother, he wanted a blood brother. He wanted somebody that he could cut his hand and make a cut, it's like, let's not. But this is what he wanted, so he just wanted a brother so bad. And those of you who raised your hands, you're an only child. It, does this sound like a familiar feeling to you? I just want a sister. I just want a brother. Why? You're tired of the old folks. Give me somebody to share some life with. Give me somebody to play with, right? Come on, only childs. Children, help me out. Am I, I see a nodding head over here. Anybody else? Yes. I was reading about some of this, and this may not be everybody's story, but there are certain things that only children have to deal with that people who grew up with brothers and sisters, they don't deal with. There is a greater sense sometimes of loneliness. There's a greater sense sometimes of isolation. Does that sound like being solitary? Yes. What's God saying here? I can fix this. I can fix your fatherlessness. I can fix your husbandlessness. I can fix your brotherlessness. And how does he do it? He takes that only child in their solitary nature, in their, in their isolated, being isolated in their heart and their mind. And he says, I can fix this and I'm putting you in a family. These verses we're talking about and reading are painting a picture of our church. The church is supposed to be a family. It's not a business. There are things we have to do administratively and, and that ha have a business side, but what the church is at its heart is a family. We are a family. And part of the way he gives fathers to the fatherless is by putting them in a church and he puts somebody as head over that church. How does he fulfill that husband role at different times? He puts them in a family where the, the family can surround them and be a defender to the widow, be a provider. And he talks all about this in the New Testament, gives us as the church the instructions of how to see for these people and take care of these people and provide for these people because this is such a big deal to him. 
This is such a big deal to him. How big a deal is it? It's such a big deal that he said, this thing is that thing. This outpouring of my Holy Spirit is the thing that Joel talked about. And I'm starting with your sons. I'm starting with your daughters. Sons. Daughters. Not only children. Not solitary. Not isolated. Sons. Daughters. And I'm pouring out my spirit on them. Praise the Lord. And I'm going to do it for the sons and the daughters. I'm going to do it for the young men, the young women, the old men, the old women, the men servants, the maid servants, anybody I can get my hands on in the family, I'm pouring my spirit out on them. Praise the Lord. Somebody say, this, this is, that. is that. Can you see it? We're not only children. You are not an only child. And I'm not just meaning you have natural brothers and sisters. How many times does the New Testament talk to us and call us brethren, brothers? Amen? Amen. Look at this with me in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3. Now let me remind you what Psalm 68 said. I'm moving too quick. Forgive me. Look at Psalm 68 one more time. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in the wilderness, the dry land, the unproductive land. So here's the question. When he says, I'm a father to the fatherless, I'm a husband to the widow, a defender to the widow, I'm, I'm going to give the only child brothers and sisters, but the rebellious are in a are dry land. Here's the question you got to ask. What are they rebelling against? Can you see this? In this scripture, what are the rebellious rebelling against? They're rebelling against family. They're rebelling, they're resisting family. God cannot be a father to an orphan who says, I don't want a father. He cannot be a husband to a widow who says, I don't want a husband. But this brother-sister thing is, has a little bit of a different nuance to it. He said he would be the father, he would be the husband, but when it came to brothers and sisters, I'm putting you in a family. Your prosperity and mine has everything to do with whether or not you will yield to your place in the family. If you're busy resisting your place, busy resisting your role in the family, this is how you dwell in a dry land. This is how you dwell in an unproductive place because you're out there disconnect, disconnected, no life flowing to you and no life flowing through you. The rebellious are rebelling against the family. And we see this show up naturally, don't we? Even among young people in a family, children, teenagers, something tries to come on them where they think, who are these old people? I don't want anything to do with them. And so they start trying to rebel against their place in the family. Don't want to do the things the family's doing. Hey, the family's sitting down to eat. I don't want to. Hey, the family's going out tonight. I don't want to. 
Leave me alone. Do you hear that? Leave me what? Leave me isolated. Leave me disconnected. It doesn't have to be this way in our families, church. Our teenagers don't have to have rebellious years. Let me try it over here. Our teenagers don't have to have rebellious years. They can stay connected to the family all the way through. They can stay at the dinner table with you. They can be there with you, connected as a family. But the same thing is true spiritually when people resist their place in the family that God's put them in. Do you know there are people supposed to be in this room right now this morning? And they're not. Why? Well, some of them may be actively resisting their place as your brother, as your sister, not realizing this is what keeps you in a dry place. Your prosperity is waiting on you. I said, your prosperity is waiting on you. Well, what's it waiting on? I wish you'd hurry up. He wishes you'd hurry up and take your seat at the table and be a part of the family. Now go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, let's look at verse 10 together. Somebody say, I'm not an only child. 1 John chapter 3, the Bible says in verse 10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Is not a child of God. He said, whoever doesn't practice righteousness, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And he expects you to live what you are. But he said, if you're not living, practicing this righteousness, you're not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. That's pretty serious. He's saying you're not a child of God unless you are loving your brother. He goes on and says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is the message. What is this? It's that. It's that thing you've heard all along. This is not a new message. This message is that message. And what was that message? That you and I should love one another. Come on, anybody ever heard that message before? Man, if you've been in church like 10 minutes, you have heard that message that we are supposed to love one another. This is the message. This is it. And any other message we preach is supposed to come out of this one. It's supposed to be rooted in this one, that you and I love one another. Notice this. Not as Cain. <laughs> this is how we don't love each other. <laughs> Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Don't murder your brother. Write that down. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Don't marvel, my brethren, 
if the world hates you, we know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. How do we know? How do we look at you and know that you are a born again child of God, that you have passed from death to life? How do we know? Oh, because I flow in the Holy Ghost and I dance when the song is loud and I sing and I praise and I roll my eyes back in my head a little bit and I pray in other tongues. That's not how we know. That's not how we know. How do we know that you have passed from death to life? What did he say? Because we love our brother because I ain't acting like an only child. You want to know the other thing only, uh, an only child has to deal with? Constant attention. The only one that ever gets any attention. That can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. You're not an only child, which means you don't need all the attention. I feel like I'm getting over into some stuff. Maybe we should just keep reading the Bible here. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, his brother's righteous. Don't marvel, my brethren. If the world hates you, we know we've passed from death to life because we love our brother. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Isn't it interesting that he's instructing us to love each other, but instead of giving us an example of love, he gives us an example of not love. And he points all the way back to Cain and Abel. And you and I read their story in the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. We're just about done here, but Genesis chapter four, we read about Cain and Abel. But I want you to read this today in light of what you know about what God wants for a family. And if you rebel against family, where you're gonna live life. Genesis chapter four. When I say rebel against family, I'm talking about rebelling against your place in the family. I'm asking you to believe with me. I've never preached some of these things before. God is definitely doing a new thing. <laughs> in Genesis chapter four, just beginning verse one, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother. I want you to notice how many times the Bible says his brother, his brother, his brother. She bore again, this time his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Do you get that? He's a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. He plants seeds. He grows crops. His whole livelihood is based on the ground and it producing for him. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering uh, of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, one of the things the New Testament in the book of Hebrews reveals to us about what's going on here is it says, by faith, Abel offered. 
This is what God respected about Abel's offering and what he disrespected about Cain's. It wasn't because God liked sheep better than he liked fruit. It didn't have anything to do with that. It had to do with the heart they were being given in. By faith, Abel offered. And this is what God respected about his offering. There's no faith, and if there's no faith, there's no love in Cain's offering. Verse five, he didn't respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Look at verse eight. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Abel, his brother. I want you to notice again how many times you hear this. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And some of the original uh, writings bring out what he said. He said, let's go to the field. So what's about to happen was premeditated. He talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know about you, but I read this for my whole life, thinking he said, am I supposed to be watching him? Am I his babysitter? That's not what this word keeper is. This word keeper is the exact same word God used when he spoke to Adam about the Garden of Eden and he said, you are to dress it and to keep it. And if you look it up, it means protect. It means defend. Am I my brother's protector? Interesting that that's what comes out of his mouth about his protection, his defense. Am I my brother's keeper? And verse 10, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And I want you to notice what happened because Cain rebelled against his brother. He failed to love his brother. Verse 11, so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. You want to know what he's saying? You're going to dwell in a dry land. The earth is not going to produce for you anymore. Because you rebelled against family. Can you see how serious family is to the Father? And this is the example we're given of what not to do. And we were laughing about it a minute ago. It's like, okay, well, as long as I don't murder anybody, we're good, right? He said, if you're not loving, if you hate your brother, 
you're a murderer. If you're not loving, if you are resisting against and rebelling against your place at the table, your place as brother in the family. What happened to Cain? God said, you're going to live in a dry land. The earth won't produce. And then he said, you're going to be a vagabond and a fugitive. I spent some time looking at these two words, and you know what they mean? Wandering. No road. No path. Aimless wandering. And what is all this connected to? Family. Family. We were shouting just a minute ago about coming out of the wilderness, weren't we? Here's the road. I said, here's the road. What's the road out? Find your place in the family. I'm telling you folks, these are dots that only the Holy Spirit can connect for us. He's getting ready to pour his spirit out on our families, which includes your children and mine. It includes our teenagers. You don't want to miss Big Vision Sunday. I'm going to talk to you about your teenagers. He's getting ready to do something with our young people. And it stirs us up. It excites us. Family. Somebody say family. Stand on your feet with me. Musicians, you guys can go ahead and come. I want to read one more verse to you. And this will be where we leave it for today. But it's from the book of Romans chapter 12. We found out what not to do with our brothers. (laughs) So how do we treat our brothers? Romans chapter 12. Again, this is one of those key scriptures the Lord gave us in the beginning days of this church. I won't read the whole thing, but in verse 10, he said, be kindly affectionate to one another with a specific kind of love. Not just love. What kind of love? Brotherly love. And he said, this is what brotherly love looks like. In honor, giving preference to one another. This, thank you. This is how the Spirit of God is about to pour himself out on this family. Brotherly love. Which is more than just, hey, love you, brother. He said, it's honor. And it's giving preference. You and I are about to see an outpouring of the Holy Ghost like we never have before. And it's going to look like you honoring your brother. And giving preference to your brother. You know what the word honor means? It means to put value on. To highly esteem. Do you know what the word preference means? It it, it means to defer to each other. And one translation says, you need to outdo one another. That's like two people standing in the doorway of the church going, after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you, I insist, no, I insist. Trying to outdo each other, loving each other, blessing each other. I'm so stirred up about this. There's about to be a move of God in this church with a giving that takes place between brothers and sisters at the table 
Somebody's going to come into this place feeling like an only child, and the Spirit of God is going to move on this brother over here to come love on this only child, and they're going to walk out of this place going, I got brothers, I got sisters, 200 of them, 300, how about 500 of them? Anybody with me? 500 of them, 500 brothers, 500 sisters in this place. How do we know we're brother and sister? We love each other. Put value on each other. Prefer one another. And I believe as the Lord leads us, we're going to spend more time talking about that. But would you let him do this through you if this is what he wanted to do? Well, it starts at home. Honoring each other at home. Valuing each other at home. After you. No, after you. No, I want to do what you want to do. No, I want to do what you want to do. I want to go where you want to go to eat. No, I want to go where you want to go to eat. It's little stuff, husbands. It's little stuff. Wives, preferring each other, deferring to one another, putting value on each other. And we're going to have to ask the Lord to teach us how to do this. Because if it's going to be an outpour like we've never seen before, then we're going to have to honor in ways we've never had before. If it's going to be an outpour like we've never experienced, then we're going to have to give preference to one another in ways we've never done it before. So can we outdo? My goal is to totally outdo you. Oh, you're going down, man. I tell you what, mine and Sarah's goal is to outdo every one of you, loving you, preferring you, putting value on you. Hallelujah. Look at your neighbor. Tell him, I'm going to outdo you. Tell him, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you so bad. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-577. 0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text Legacy in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.